Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. Food is our common ground, a universal experience, is a quote from the American chef, author and teacher James Beard. An influential figure to generations of chefs and culinary enthusiasts the world over. I thought this was an appropriate quote for our guest today. Someone who has had the opportunity to showcase the universality of food through 27,000 restaurants in over 149 countries. Our guest is Tony Lowings, former Global Chief Executive Officer of KFC. Prior there too, he was based in Singapore as Managing Director for KFC Asia Pacific and was Managing Director of the KFC Business in Australia and New Zealand and Chief Operating Officer for Yum Restaurants International based in Dallas, Texas. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you can apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our listeners in the United States, Singapore and New Zealand, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners, Executive Search and Board Advisory. In this episode, we hear of the impressive growth and scale of what is one of the world's most popular brands, against the backdrop of Tony's globetrotting career. From South Africa to Australia, Singapore to the United States, he treats us with fascinating experiences across different cultures, united by a popular yet humble dish. Having led a $31 billion business, and roughly a million people, Tony shares with us his key learnings, mobilizing a global workforce through a pandemic, the importance of trust and communication, and embracing the challenge. So sit back and enjoy, draw the distinction. Tony, welcome to the show. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me. Interesting accent. So you want to talk us through where, where are you actually from? Well, born in South Africa um, and moved to Australia when I was about 26 years old. So that obviously framed up my uh, childhood and my education and my initial start in business in the South African environment, yeah. How was life in South Africa in those days? You know, it was pretty good. It was idyllic. I grew up, uh, I think, with a lot of Australians can relate to, you know, pretty safe environment, playing in the street, enjoying surfing, playing sport, uh, enjoying life. But, you know, I grew up in the backdrop of apartheid, which was part of the, you know, the South African environment at that point in time, which, to be honest, wasn't that prevalent in terms of people's imaginations and, you know, top of mind for young people growing up. Mm-hmm. But interestingly enough, my father, for some reason, was a very strong anti-apartheid uh, 
activist, I could say. Really? He wasn't uh, directly locked up or anything like that, but he certainly created an environment when I grew up to have a strong point of view about the inequities around apartheid. And that was one of the reasons why I ended up leaving the country. So that was quite unusual because not many people had that point of view about life. So I grew up with this whole sense of injustice and inequity for people to be able to get ahead and lack of opportunity purely based on people's color of their skin. And yeah. that stayed with me all my life. So that was a very big impact on my upbringing. Was it easy to express those views in those days? No, not really. And it wasn't just because it was difficult from a political point of view, but it was also socially unacceptable. Most people had a point of view that was either you know, in line with what the government felt or Certainly just in line with society felt. So when you were on the edge, you're a little bit ostracized. And again, part of the reason why I left and came to Australia. What did mum and dad do? Well, I grew up in a, in a fairly poor household. My dad left school when he was 12 because he didn't have enough money for him to go to school. So he became a postman. I think he got his first pair of shoes when he was 15 or 16. They were so hand-me-downs from his brother. <laughs> his three other brothers uh, stayed as postmen, and that was the only job they had all their lives. And interestingly, for someone who didn't have a lot of money and grew up in a poor environment, my father then chose to become a, an artist, which, again, doesn't exactly have a, <laughs> a huge uh, financial uh, uh, you know, value that comes with that sort of kind of profession. So we grew up in a fairly uh, modest household without a lot of uh, you know, financial possessions. And again, you know, that probably influenced my life as well. And the artistic flair, what was he uh, focused on? Well, he started out just uh, doing painting, but he, you know, obviously that doesn't really pay the bills and selling pictures. So he got into advertising. He was a creative director for one of the big advertising agencies for a while. He, he found that very stressful, so <laughs> he didn't do that for forever. And then he ended up partnering with a, a friend of his that he had met at art school, and they owned several art, uh, we call them art galleries, art shops that did picture framing, selling pictures, and he made his living doing that. So when you were coming up as a young man, where was your focus? Well, I know you're a surfer and you like your sport, but uh, the interest in business, was that coming from anyone in particular? Well, Certainly, given the background my father had about not going to school, yeah. uh, the one drive that he had with us was to get an education. Okay. So throughout my school, it was you know a strong push from the parents to get take your education seriously and get into university and do something that was going to take you somewhere. Yep. I originally was interested in doing something like architecture, which had that sort of slight artistic bent to it. Yes. And kind of sort of got a halfway uh, mark by moving into civil engineering, which was sort of, you know, also on the building side of things like that. And once you get sucked into that in a university environment, uh, it's very hard to break out of that. So I, I finished four years of engineering, uh, got into working in that environment, but it never really excited me. So I moved from there and went along and did a, a master of business just to branch out and see where that could take me. And that really got, got me interested in, in business. Where was the lucky break? Well, I came out of uh, my MBA, it was a prestigious business school in South Africa at the time at Cape Town, which was very well regarded. Yep. And I went and uh, joined Deloitte as a consultant. I think I was the first engineer that they ever hired. So that really gave me a, just a wonderful exposure to business. You know, we did just these incredibly diverse, different sort of business uh, activities involved in commercial analysis, um, you know, working with the World Bank, working yep. in different countries around South Africa. And that really just sparked the, the fuel and the desire to do something in commerce and, and business. And then when I moved from South Africa to Australia, that obviously continued. So what was the story behind that, the big move? It's not an easy move, is it? No, it isn't. But as I said, I was always fueled by this notion that the apartheid system was not something that I felt comfortable with. I was going to the army. In those days, you did two years national service. And then yep. every year thereafter, you did either one month, one year, three months the next year in what they used to call camps, military camps. Yeah. And at that time, 
because apartheid was in full swing, they used to use the military often to go and quell unrest in townships. Yep. Yep. Um, a friend of mine actually got involved in a situation where he was in an armored vehicle and got fired on by young black kids um, and ended up, one of the guys in the, in the armored vehicle got killed. He ended up firing back. And that, that haunted me. And the fact that this person actually ended up firing on other citizens of the country who, yes, had done something which was very difficult to, to you know, deliver with, you know, shooting at people. But it wasn't something that he, he aspired to do, which was to, you know, have a bone to pick with other people of different color. And, and that worried me, you know, getting into a situation like that, along with all the other iniquities around apartheid. I couldn't see it uh, changing in a hurry. Mm-hmm. So um, I took the opportunity to, to look elsewhere and look outside the country. And when you depart South Africa, do you have to leave everything behind? Are you able to transfer any form of financials? Well, I left at the age of 26, so I didn't have much at the time. I'd been at university for a while, a couple of years in the army and you know, did my master's degree. So I hadn't really established myself at all. So it was very easy for me to leave. So I didn't have anything to take with me and started afresh in Australia. Why Australia? Very similar to South Africa in a lot of respects. Obviously, English speaking, the climate's similar. They play rugby, cricket, and they're surfing. So <laughs> that kind of uh, made it uh, made it an easy place to live. I knew a couple of people who who worked here, a couple of guys uh, who did my MBA with. Uh, so that was was helpful. But if I hadn't gotten to Australia, I suppose New Zealand or maybe the US or something like that. But eternally grateful that I was able to get into Australia and and uh, been here for a while. So talk us through the uh, the rise in the in, career in terms of career. Yeah. Yeah, look, I, I've always, as I said, I, you know, partly because of my father, I think, driven to to do well and be successful. So, you know, I, I worked in a in a consulting business for a while. I, I worked for Len Lease, which was a fabulous firm in the eighties to to work for early nineties. Good disciplines. Yeah, very good disciplines. Top management. And I think when you get into an environment where there's you know good high quality individuals around you, it fuels a desire just to constantly be better. You know, I ended up uh, falling into the KFC role. It was, yeah. uh, it was, uh, you know, I'd done, as I said, work in the engineering field, worked That's in right. lease and financial management. A lot of it was individual contributor stuff. So the opportunity to work at KFC just gave me this idea of being able to, you know, practice management of people, leadership around people, which I hadn't really had at all. For the benefit of everybody out of there, talk us through that story because it isn't, you know, you're an engineer. Yep. You're on the lease, which is a household brand. Mm. And how do you make the move from lease into... That type of uh, industry, it was a bit of a sidestep. Very. It was actually interesting. I was headhunted for the role. Someone phoned me up. I wasn't particularly looking at leaving Lendlease, but I was looking for something, you know, adding to my portfolio of my growth, as I said, looking for people management. And uh, just sounded interesting. KFC at the time was owned by PepsiCo. So yep. I joined PepsiCo yep. and I joined, you know, PepsiCo had a multitude of you know, career opportunities uh, besides just the KFC or restaurant brand. So, you know, I saw that as a wonderful stepping stone into just changing my career path into this PepsiCo business. Mm-hmm. So I joined them in a financial role and literally did that for about six or seven months. And someone came to me and said, Tony, why don't you get involved in operations? I think you've got a skill for it. I think you might do well at it. And was that was completely out of left field for me, which is to go in and actually run the operations for the KFC business in New South Wales. So I said yes. And um, it was a bit daunting because I hadn't had a lot of experience in that space before. Mm -hmm. And literally within a couple of months, I absolutely fell in love with it. What's the bug? You know, it's that ability to work in an incredibly fast-paced environment, which I think the you know, the fast food sector is. And then secondly, you're working with lots of people who you can really make an impact on. So I think that's 
probably a little bit of an ego thing maybe, but you know, when you get out of bed every day and there's a whole swathe of people that really rely on the decisions that you make every day that's going to impact on their daily activities and their potential career, it fills you with a responsibility, but also fills you with a great sense of purpose. It makes you feel excited about what you're doing. It gives you real meaning to to a job and you can make a difference. It's really, you know, real hands-on stuff. It's not coming out of Lend-Lease where you'd make a decision and 12 months later or 18 months later, you'd see the fruits of that decision. This was real hands-on stuff making an impact every single day. But you got choice. Why KFC? Interesting history there. Interesting brand. No, not really. I mean, it, it was interesting. KFC is a very strong brand in South yeah. Africa. And I remember it when I when I was living there. It had sort of started out when, when I was there. But no, no particular reason. Um, okay. it, it was, as I said, partly because it was owned by Pepsi. Yep. It had a, a sister brand and Pizza Hut. Yes. So it looked as though it had a wide range of opportunity yeah, for okay. career advancement. Right. So that was the initial part of it. Good landing pad in that sense to start yeah. with. And I assumed that I'd be in, would be with Pepsi more so than I'd be with a restaurant brand. So that wasn't that wasn't the way it panned out though. Talk us yeah. through what the next step was after that because you got you obviously got success. So where do you think, why were you spotted so quickly? Look, I think in the fast food industry, there's a bunch of stuff that is a prerequisite to being successful. And, you know, one of the characteristics of people who do make it is to be pretty good at a lot of different things. And if you go through that list of things, each in their own right is actually not that difficult. But to get them all to come together is quite hard. You don't get a lot of people to do it. So you've got to be reasonably smart. You've got to have good people skills. You've got to be able to have strategy. But at the same time, you've got to be able to really be able to get into the detail, you know, which obviously my engineering degree and background helped me with. Yep. You've really got to understand consumers and understand how people think because you've got to put yourself in the shoes of people that are not the same as you and still be able to make judgment calls on that. And then you have to have all the commercial skills, you know, from uh, supply chain to development, to understand sites, to understand the P&L deeply, to understand, you know, operations in a back of house, to understand how things are, you know, you know technically put together and cooked. So it's got this wide range of skills. And I think that, you know, given my interest, enthusiasm for just the business, it was pretty easy for me to pick those up and be successful in that regard. What's the scale in the sense of, uh, now on a global, we'll get to the stepping stones in a second, yeah. but maybe you can just frame it for the audience. What is the scale of KFC? KFC right now is just under 27,000 restaurants around the world, probably $31 billion in sales. It's the second biggest uh, QSR business that we call next to McDonald's, yep. um, and it's growing incredibly rapidly. So we are operating in about 149 countries, I think, at last count. And uh, as I said, it's uh, it's a license to you know print money and grow grow. It's a very very strong growth model. Why is it growing so much? Partly because it has this unique position around wonderful tasting food. People just love the taste of KFC, um, and everywhere around the world, it works very well. But we notice, particularly in emerging markets, it's doing incredibly well. It's uh, it, it does extremely well in places like China, across yep. Asia. It's obviously the number one brand in most markets in Africa, very strong in Latin America. So uh, we've been able to get a foothold in many of those places. Um, chicken is the protein of choice for a lot of people in places like Asia. People love uh, international brands when they coming out of and moving into the middle class for the first time. So as a lot of the emerging markets are, are becoming a little bit more affluent and people want to have access to some international branding, mm-hmm. food is a natural choice for them. Um, you know, If you go to Latin America, where I worked and ran for a long yep. time, yep. food and family are fundamentals to the society. 
So as soon as you've got a little bit of money that you can spend as disposable income, what better way of doing it than demonstrating your your affluence to the people around you than buying an international brand, getting your family together and feeding them in a KFC restaurant. So um, for those reasons and many others, it's been incredibly successful and continues to be so. You're listening to No Limitations with special guest Tony Lowings. In our next episode, I sit down with Gillian Broadbent, AC, non-executive director of Macquarie Group. Yes, I've been very lucky in some of the both community and uh, not-for-profit and profit organisations that I've been involved with because it has given me a very broad knowledge of all sorts of industries and therefore an interest in those industries. Be sure to join us on our next episode. And now, back to the show. So, Tony, how do you make the step from making a move from Lendlease to KFC to running New South Wales to running the organisation? That's enormous and it was done fairly swiftly. You know, you obviously put your hand up, you know, you lived in different parts of the world. So you took responsibility, but what else, Tony? Because this, this is an enormous scale. Yeah, it is. I think the, you know, the way that KFC tends to run its business is be incredibly planful around people. So we put as much emphasis on people as we do on the business. So okay. all of our you know, operating plans and our planning cycles on the finance and the commercial side of thing is counterbalanced by just as much in terms of the people planning side of it. So people identified very early on as to whether they've got the potential, and I'm not saying I was anointed as the future CEO that early on in my career, but you certainly get put into a, into a small group of people and you get uh, you know, mentored along the way, hopefully so that you can grow develop, get the experience, and then put yourself in a position where you can take on that big role. So the CEO role was probably identified with me about three years out from actually taking it on board. Mm -hmm. But up until then, there is a process to give you experiences, to give you exposure to different things in life so that you can get that degree of experience so that you can prove to people and to yourself and to others that you're capable of doing that kind of role. And then when you get into it, you've got the ability and the capability to make a fist of it. Which market tested you the most? Strangely enough, it was the small stint that I did outside of KFC, which was I actually ran the operations for Pizza Hut in Australia for a while. Mm -hmm. And uh, Pizza Hut was going through a tough time. You know, this is uh, in the late 90s. The pizza wars were in full swing. And uh, I think Domino's was, was, was sort of staking its claim into the environment. And we were moving from a a restaurant-based operation and Pizza Hut to a delivery-based operation, which is extremely challenging because it's not an easy no. thing just to close restaurants and convert to a delivery business. And I think, as with most things in life, is that the bigger the challenge, the bigger the learning. So that, for me, was a, was a tremendous learning curve for about three years that I did that. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about how to handle adversity and how to deal with people when they're under challenge and, and stress. So that helped me. I think, in the rest of my KFC career. What did you learn about traveling around the world? You know what I learned is that basically most human beings are the same. They get out of bed every day wanting to do good, be liked, be successful, um, be good to other people. All sorts of things get in the way as they do with us. But genuinely, if you can tap into that soul of the people, into the real characters to who they are, I find most people are, are wonderful and lovely to be with. And, you know, one of the things, you know, in, in countries that, you know, people wouldn't expect, you know, I was in, in fact, one of my last trips I did before the COVID put a curtail on a lot mm -hmm. of travel was to Pakistan, which has a, you know, 
a poor reputation around the world. Some of the best people and nicest people I met were in Pakistan. Yeah, right. You know, they go out of their way just to do good in the community, help people less fortunate than themselves, run a great business, look after their team, look after their employees. Um, so it gives you great faith in humanity. And that's what I found exciting about traveling the world. The market as a whole is worth, what, $813.9 billion? Is that, or will be by 2028? That's some statistics we had put forward. Is that accurate, inaccurate? Probably sounds in the, in the rough order, yes. So what's been in the last, in your experience, what's been the changes in trends? And obviously it's new markets you entered, as you said, and there's more wealth in certain markets. But what has the industry done or what has KFC done or what has Yum done to accelerate that growth? Well, look, a, a number of things, but I think first of all, it's about the food. So I think if you look at the quality of the food, not only for KFC, but for competitors around the world, I think it's improved quite significantly over the last 20 or 30 years yeah. that I've been involved. So. Yeah. Quality of the food is better. The way that the food is prepared, the providence that goes in in terms of the ingredients, everything else so generally you, is better. So can you give us a bit of an insight or flavor to the, why the food has changed? Well, I think customers demand it. I think customers have an expectation that, you know, as they become not necessarily more affluent, but as they get more exposure to transparency, they can understand what goes into their mouth. They're yep. aware of health trends. They understand what helps in terms of longevity and and all those sort of things like that, there is this desire to be a little bit more aware of food and, 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 and their food choices. So partly through that transparency process, yep. I think it's encouraged people to to be better at, at the quality of the food they put in. But then it's competition as well. So, you know, when I was growing up, people ate out very seldom. Most of it was home-cooked meals. Everyone saw that as the pinnacle of sort of, you know, good eating. And you went to a fine dining restaurant every now and then and maybe one or two fast food restaurants. Yes. Now there's an absolute plethora of them. So the choice is very high. And if you're not very good at what you do, you lose out very quickly. So it's, t it's a tough game being in the food business. And we see it all around the place, not only in fast food, but in restaurants as well. So you have to be good at your game. And you have to be relevant to the consumers as well. So where's the opportunities? Because we've got the likes of vegetarians uh, increasing. As you say, taste is changing. But where is the big opportunity? Is it, is it always? The, is it just the new markets at the moment? Will there be extra growth in the established markets? Look, I think there's always going to be growth for KFC, even in markets where we, you know, very strongly penetrated. The number of people that eat from us on a regular basis is fairly, fairly, still fairly small. So there's there always will be this desire for great tasting food. And just to extrapolate on that, um, you know, things like uh, home delivery, access yep. to to food through different apps, um, you know, being able to get catering orders, all those sort of things like that improves and increases people's ability to experience the food. But yes, they're, 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 I think the, the the quality and the structure of the menu is changing so that, you know, if you go back when I first joined, you know, people would just buy buckets of chicken. That was sort of the fundamental structure of the of the menu. Nowadays, it's a it's a much you know more um, nuanced menu structure. It has meal bundles for different occasions. It has snacking opportunities. You know, it has you know mid meal occasions, at late night. It has for group occasions. All of those things are catered to. It's got beverage options, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, you see that by playing around with the menu in terms of bundling, structure, packaging, as well as adding new products into the menu, you certainly get get take up on that. So I think that drives more interest from consumers. Inconsistency around the world in terms of oils, et cetera, used, is it consistent? No, it's not consistent. Okay. It's uh, It varies depending on the individual society that you're in. So KFC... We, we have an envelope and a framework in which we operate, but generally each country has a 
set of societal norms or standards from their uh, regulatory environments, which are different in different countries around the world. We have a, a minimum standard, and obviously in many, many countries, that is much higher than yeah. what the, the regulations are. But generally, it's not that easy, and that's through all sorts of reasons, just from supply chain to what uh, governs you know, normal, normal you know, society practice. So when you became CEO of a group which operates over 145 countries, one, how do you do it on a day-to-day basis? And when you took on the role, what did you want to leave it as? Hmm. Yeah, good question. I, th- I think in terms of running a business of that scale requires a little bit of discipline and structure. So the one thing that I'm ruthless on is planning, you know, make sure that I'm planning very well in advance, at least 12 months out, making sure that we've got a rhythm and structure in terms of people engagement so that you can actually get to check in with people and check with people on a structured, regular basis as things don't fall through the cracks. So that's from engaging one-on-one meetings to you know, global meetings with all of my direct reports to big forums and for terms of conferences to the way that you set up uh, conference calls, best practice sharing. And for me, most of it was around travel. So I'd, we'd have 19 business units around the world and I'd travel and visit all of those business units every year. And obviously a few of them a couple of times a year anyway. So getting that structure around one's calendar, very, very important and making sure that you've got a discipline around that uh, becomes critical. Otherwise, you can quickly get pulled off in different directions with stuff that happens all the time. So that becomes, becomes a component of it. And then your second part of the question, which is when I stepped into the role, what was exciting for me? And did you want to take the role? I did. I did. I, you know, I'd, I think the last five or six roles that I'd had in KFC, to some extent, I was assumed that I'd be in those roles for a long period of time. I loved all of them. I didn't have a particular ambition to take another step forward and always got tapped on the shoulder for another role quicker than I anticipated. Um, but I always said yes. I always said yes to the next opportunity. And I think that helped me along the way. And I certainly, when I moved into the CEO role, I think I was ready. I was experienced. I had all the right uh, um, you know, credentials to make a fist of it. And I, and I think I was comfortable to do it. I think the, and as I'd said before, KFC's ethos is about people. It has a very strong focus on people. And it's something that I feel very passionate about. As I said, I think probably Growing up with apartheid in South Africa stimulated that for, but, you know, I've seen it around the world, you know, walking into third world countries where people are working for KFC, where it's their, you know, that's their entire family subsistence wages and, you know, looking after people and the joy that you can bring to people by helping them grow and develop and become, you know, better human beings. So when I took on the role, my fundamental focus was to make sure that we could elevate all of the people that worked in with KFC and make sure that we could impact their lives in a better way than what they were doing right now. So I think that's been the cornerstone to our success. We look at the people who work at KFC and say, what can we do to help you be better? And I think most organizations look at their workforce and say, what can you do to help us get better as an organization? And I think, you know, the, the other thing that I've, you know, pushed very strongly, which a lot of people might, uh, might, might, might want to disagree philosophically with it is that, the most important person to us is our employee, not the consumer, not the customer. Because if you don't have the right employees in place, if you don't nurture them, if you don't look after them, if you don't create the right environment for them, they're never going to be able to help the customer. And they're not going to do it if you, you know, when you're not yeah. watching them. So creating this environment where a lot of it's entry-level jobs working in KFC right. and creating an environment where people want to be there, not because they have to be there, is a, such an important, subtle difference. And I think that's what we do very well. And I think I helped create that. 
How do you pass that down? Well, it, it starts from this notion that every single person is a human being. Every single person can develop and grow in our organization, and we want them to be better. So we've introduced a whole range of tools and techniques and training processes basically to uh, put in place systems that say, if you work at KFC, we want to make you a better person. And you know, I'll give you an example. In, in, in Australia, we have a lot of young people who join us, you know, working at school or at university, and we know that they're not going to stay with us forever. No. We know they're going to be there for a year or two, three, four max, and then move on to something else. And our philosophy is we just want them to be better at what they do. We want them to be a better doctor or nurse or dentist or teacher or you know, plumber or mechanic or whatever it is because of the few years that they spent at KFC. And in fact, we've got programs that specifically mentor young people who come into our, our restaurants to help them on their next stage of their career beyond KFC. And I think that in itself, and that's just one example from many countries around the world, what that does is it makes people feel as though that where they're working isn't just a job. It's something that's actually helping them progress themselves in a way that's going to make them better human beings. And you know, particularly whilst the career part of it is good, the other piece that we put a lot of emphasis on is making people better husbands and wives and fathers and sons and daughters, so make them better contributing members of society. And we think that that's something that we do particularly well. So when you got the role, hmm. you sat back and thought, okay, how long did you give yourself a timeline? In terms of how long I was going to stay in the role for? Hmm. Um, I did to some extent. Uh, I would say that the last two years of COVID sort of probably accelerated that yep. slightly, yep. but it's it was in the, in in, the, in that sort of sort of zone, you know, okay. four or five years. Yeah. Okay, and that's that's the optimum you think? Look, I think it depends on the stage of one's individual career and also where the organisation was. So yep. for me, that was about right. Yes. Okay. So no looking, regrets from so, that point of view. Okay, so looking at yep. a couple of predecessors beforehand, you've had exposure to. Hmm. I understand what you're talking about a minute ago, but was there much you were going to change? Because you're the tough gig, you're coming up and everybody knows you. Mm. So how do I follow my peer? That's not easy. I've been working with you and I, I, maybe I missed out getting that gig or maybe I'm competing with you along the way. So am I going to survive when you get the CA role? What do, you, what do you do to secure what you want to achieve? Well, I think it depends on how you craft and carve out your leadership position. Yes, it does. And I think there are certain people who are ego-driven in the way that they manage those particular career choices. It's all about them, and it's all about what they're going to do to show that they've made their mark. I think in our organization, and certainly my style has been about trying to better unlock the potential of people around me. And um, I think I put a lot of effort on trying to collaborate with people so that everyone individually could be more successful as human beings in their own right, and they could translate that and cascade that down through the organization so that as a whole, we all collectively were better a few years down the track. That's what I aspired to. That's what I wanted to do. Um, and I think we did. Now, that's almost irrespective of what anyone else has done before you. If you just continue to to push that harder and bigger and better, you, you will be more successful. And I, so I think that it's it's less about what did you do, it's how you did it, you know. So I think, of course, if I go back over the last three or four years yeah, that okay. I've been in that CEO role, yep. we had some incredible financial results, You know, some of the best results we've ever had. Yes, Those are not the ones that stick with me. It's seeing the quality of the people that we've got come through. It's seeing the success that we had at um, you know junior ranks around the world. It's seeing the development of human beings, seeing the better leadership that we've got in place, and seeing that we actually set up for the next decade in a better place than when I first came in. With such a 
I guess, a, um, a strong model hmm. and strong DNA and culture. Are you allowed to really stretch the envelope in that sense as the CEO? I think there's always going to be some boundaries. And, and that's, you know, one of the things when I came on board is that um, we'd always had this philosophy about people first and great culture. I added to that this thing about high performance. Okay, so go on. What's that? Because that's, you know, yeah, I understand people first and high culture. Because if you cannot deliver on the results, then that's when you get very exposed. And that's when you lose the license to put effort around people. Okay, so how do you address that? How did you bring that up and say, oh, I want to question what high performance means? So what we did is we actually, um, you know, we always used to have this notion of people first and great culture, and we made it into high performance culture with people first. So we, we built that into the vernacular. And then the way we looked at it was that fundamentally the way that you get high performance is that you empower people and you have the ability to motivate people to be better than what they are right now and to achieve things they didn't think were possible. And if you can create that environment, one, you make people feel better about themselves, you make them feel excited about the future, and secondly, you get better results. So it's a virtuous circle. And I think the way it works is, it sounds pretty simple, but it's complicated, yeah. is that when you have people who can work together in a collaborative way, genuinely collaborative way, you can achieve wonderful things. What normally happens is that people tend to vie for attention. Who's got the best idea? Um, because if I've got the best idea, I'm going to get recognized. If I get recognized, I might get a promotion. I'll get some financial benefit. Yep. I'll be ahead of everyone else. And that's how I advance myself. As I said, we've got such an emphasis on people that we don't not that people don't do that. Of course they will, but we reduce that down quite a lot because people know that if they're good, they will get advancement anyway. They don't have to shoulder jostle with people to try and step over others to be heard and recognized. So you create this culture where the ideas that people have can surface in the best possible way. So the best idea can come forward. What I've found in a lot of organizations, it's not the best idea that comes forward. It's the person He's either got the loudest voice, who's got the biggest charisma, or has the attention of the boss, or whatever it might be. And therefore, you don't always get the best ideas. When you've got a highly collaborative environment where the best idea can surface very quickly, people can let go of their own agendas and say, let's support that idea because it's a good idea. I'm, I'm happy to give up all the work I've had for the last three months because this is a better idea than mine. You can really accelerate progress. And I think that's what made a fundamental difference to a lot of work that we did is that people would rally behind the best creative ideas quickly, which in other organizations might take two or three months to do, we could do in two or three days. What were the good ideas coming out during COVID? Well, that was uh, pretty intense. So I think when COVID first started, which is restaurants around the world were getting closed, uh, shopping malls were getting closed, how do people get access to food? So pretty obvious you had to get into delivery and, and how, do you, how do you ramp up delivery? And that conceptually is pretty easy to say, it's very hard to do. So getting creative around how do you employ delivery drivers? How do you put in place digital systems to make that happen? How do you you know, get something to scale up across 149 countries very quickly? All of those things logistically and um, you know, planful-wise is complicated. So some of those things. How do you give people a sense of trust when they're worried about food that might be handled and touched by people yep. and you know, to transmit stuff? How do you how do you build that trust with people and make them you know, feel comfortable about buying from you? So all of those things were creative ideas that we had to work our way through. And as a CEO, was this a come with the hour, come with the person type opportunity in my mind? Yeah, I think so. We, you know, when COVID crisis hit, you know, we immediately put a crisis team together, <laughs> uh, you know, because we've got international operations. I don't think I had 
more than three hours of continuous sleep for probably about three months um, okay. as we went through that. And we took the best learnings we could and really implemented step by step very, very rapidly throughout the world. And I think we made a big difference very quickly. All After right. three months, I think we kind of got a bit more into the routine and got it established. So. Can you give us a bit of insight there, Tony? So that's, yeah. That is impressive. Mm. All right. Three hours, not a lot of sleep. Most people mm. can't function. What's the war room? What's going on? Well, again, as I said, if you surround yourself with good people who you know are all in it together, uh, you know, one of the things I've found from a leadership point of view is that knowledge that you're responsible for other people and they look to you for their well-being. Yep. Um, and you've got other people who are staying up all hours of the night and doing things like that. It certainly puts the pressure back on you to 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 at least do the same. It was counterbalanced by the fact that I'd been in the US for a while, then I moved back to Australia because my daughter was at, at school and thought it was going to be a very temporary situation. So I was operating out of Australia and most of my team were in the US. So that contributed to kind of weird hours and things like that as well. But yeah, no, the daily routines and calls. And given that I deal with people around the globe, it wasn't difficult to fill up a 24-hour period with uh, with different calls at different time zones around the world. And obviously calls morphed into Zoom and team meetings pretty quickly. So, And once you get into the rhythm of that, we were able to move through that and then slowly get back into a structured operating environment. Okay. First question, what did you learn about yourself and what did you think people were looking for from you in terms of leadership? I think the first thing, that, and I think this has stayed with me all my life, is that I, I don't get stressed too you much. No, not not so much from work. I tend to have this thing which I look at it and I say, what's the worst thing that can happen? And I quickly paint the scenario that says, plan and think of the absolute worst thing. And once you think and dwell on that for a little while, everything after that is a little bit actually got an upside to it. So it paints a little bit of a more rosy picture. So the other thing is it's just work. I mean, it's just business. I mean, it's not life and death really, you know. So, you know, obviously situations, you know, it can get close to that. But from the work that I'm doing, it's it's business. So that was one thing. So I think that the, the lack of stress from a business point of view helped me and it helped me to be calm. So I think if you go back and talk to anyone they will tell you that during those three months, plus also for the last couple of years, my calm demeanor, my ability to work through stressful situations with others around me and to be able to come up with a clear outcome was something that they valued and you know gave people a sense of trust and, and feeling of resilience for the organization. Make a lot of changes during that time? Or were you surprised by certain people who didn't come to the, to the party? No, not really. I think, you know, as I said, because of the emphasis that we put on people all the way through our organization, and one of the key components we we value in employees, especially senior employees, is character. Yeah, okay. And knowing how people are going to respond during times of stress is an important attribute of, of understanding how good a leader someone's going to be. So I think when COVID hit, there weren't many surprises. Maybe one or two people behave slightly differently, but no. But we were we were generally um, super impressed with how everyone stepped up to the occasion and were very comfortable with what happened. High performance teams. Who do you go and study? Who do you partner with? Where do you get insights from? We've done a lot of work with McKinsey and Bain and BCG and people like that. But to yeah. be honest, we've developed some tools and systems that we use inside KFC, which have have been influenced by some external providers. We use a tool, for example, called Heart Styles which is essentially goes back to this comment I made before, which is about how do you understand character of human beings yep. and how, does, uh, how do you develop that character yep. for yourself and for those around you? And I think if you go through the process of making sure that you're hiring smart people who've got a big heart and are courageous, 
that's the filter for success. Because after that, all you need to do is you need to put a bunch of good people together in a room, allow the best ideas to surface, making sure that you've got people with good character prepared to let go of their ideas to support those. Makes life a lot easier. So, you know, I think this whole, as I say, virtuous circle of hiring good people, instilling the right culture, developing character, and then allowing it to develop in that environment has helped us. What's reverse mentoring then? <laughs> well, I think reverse mentoring is uh, works very well for, for skills, specific skills, which um, are picked up by the younger generation rather than maybe by the older generation. I think, you know, everything develops over time. And obviously, there's a whole wave of new stuff which is occurring, which weren't there when I was young. So my focus and emphasis has been on people leadership and development and financial skills and all the rest of it. When it comes to things like digital, i a bit of a bunny when it comes to that. So I've had a couple of people who I've used as reverse mentors, young people who you know grew up with iPhones in their, in their crib and uh, understand how to program computers very eloquently and better than I could even think of. And learn from them in terms of what are those kind of things that work well, particularly social media, for example. I've got a couple of kids who also help me with that as well. So I wouldn't say I've become an expert on that. But I think the reverse mentoring has allowed them to help me in terms of decisions that I might make that could affect that or use that, that information to affect it over time. Decision making. Yeah. So when it was hitting the crunch and you were getting your three hours night of sleep, someone's got to call. Collaboration's got to a certain point. Someone's got to make the decision. How comfortable are you in doing that? Yeah, look, that's what, that's I, what you get paid for, isn't it? It is. It is. And I think decision making is a is a funny one. I think if you make decisions without getting by in an alignment, I think you can do that at certain points in time. There's always a risk of lack of acceptance from that from a from a group of people, and you see it in politics around around the, the country at the moment. Yep. So there's a risk that you go with that, even if it's a great decision. So I think the the ability to make decisions and try and get your key stakeholders at least somehow engaged with that decision just before you fundamentally have to make it is always helpful. Occasionally you can't do that and there's a risk that comes with that. I think the corollary is is worse, which is consensus decision making generally is appalling. So when you have to have every single person agree on every single component of it, you end up with mediocre outcomes. So I think that's the essence of a or certainly one of the essence of leadership, which is how do you draw that distinction between making a unilateral decision by yourself versus making a consensus decision and choosing as to where you draw the line in that case. And I think that's got to be done by experience, expertise, and judgment. You talked about character, courage, and big heart. Mm. All right. How do you go about identifying these people? When do you really test them during their career? And when did you think you were really tested early days in your career? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a tough one. I think, I think everyone genuinely thinks that they're a good judge of character. You know, you go around the room, there's no one or somebody who's going to say, oh, gee, I'm terrible at that. Everyone thinks they're good. So, you know, during an interview process when we hire people, one, we would have our recruitment agents who, who kind of knew what we were looking for, so they would screen people. And then normally we would, you know, have, you know, six or seven people interview individuals as they come through and we'd triangulate on that to try and get the best outcome on that. We've tried all sorts of scientific methods on checking with people as to how they're going to behave and all the rest of it, and we haven't found anything that's really worked very well. Um, there's that old adage that when you interview someone that it's you normally – can tell within the first two minutes as to whether you think they're good or not. Yeah, gut instinct. Yeah, and I think that's been debunked. And they say it's 30 seconds. Exactly. <laughs> and, and to some extent, that's true. So when I interview people, I would purely be looking for 
whatever you want to call it, cultural fit. You know, is this person someone who's going to relate to other people? Are they going to fit in? Is it someone you can trust? Is that someone you want to, you know, go to war with and yep. feel confident that you're going to have someone who's capable and going to operate with you? So I think those things are, are judgment calls. And, you know, I think that over 27 years, you you get used to making those calls. Sometimes you get it wrong, but I think more often we got it right. And I think that was one of the skills about KFC is that we got better and better and better about hiring good people. And you hire good people who fit in, then you perpetuate the cycle that you want. So we wouldn't have a lot of people that we would let go, but we would every now and then. One of the challenges we get as a search firm is to find people who, just to your point, who fit in. Hmm. But do you always want people who fit in? Because how then are you really challenged to think differently? I think sometimes that it's an easy place when you put people in who come from that same type of backgrounds, but you start that that also can be beginning of an end as well. Absolutely, I think that's a a great question. We get asked this all the time, which is so. I think that the and again, this comes back to that balance, which is what you want is you want people who can collaborate effectively, who can um, allow ideas to surface, who can engage with others, who can motivate people around them, who can inspire the people to follow them when they come up with good things. But you don't want people who've got all the same point of view about things. And again, when we operate across 149 countries, we see people from all walks of life and we see people from cultures who operate very differently to the way that I do. And you're seeing it in in the world today in terms of trying to build diverse teams and build you know, more people of color, more, more, more female leaders in, in place. And everyone has a slightly different way of operating. And I think we've embraced that pretty well. So we challenge ourselves to constantly add diversity in our group and not just in terms of what people look like, but in mm-hmm. diversity of thinking, diversity of background. But at the same time, we've got to have people who can get on well with other people. I think that's a sort of a common You've got to have people of good character. Yep. You've got to have people who are truthful, <laughs> who are courageous, who have got big hearts. I think that's the constant norm because if you don't, whilst they might be different and therefore they might add a different perspective on it, they can be very disruptive to the organization in terms of being able to do the things that you really want to achieve over time. What's the edge, Tony? Is it creativity? And how do you position yourself that you can see three, five years over the hill? Because you know your competitors are coming for you day in, day out. I think it's about having a good um, strategy, and that's a hackneyed word, isn't it? Um, yeah. It's about really trying to understand where the consumer is heading. Um, that, that's a tough one because you know we employ people, as I said, consulting groups and various different organisations to try and give us a perspective about where people are heading, and you know more often than not they're wrong in terms of what that's going to look like five or ten years from now. Yes. But I think what you have to do is you have to be able to create an organization that's flexible and nimble. And when you've got $31 billion of sales globally across 149 countries, it's pretty hard to be nimble and flexible. Absolutely. (laughs) So you've got to drive very hard so that you can actually accommodate, adapt, and change to circumstances relatively quickly. You'll never do it as quickly as a guy who's got, you know, 10 restaurants and running them by himself. But, you know, I think we've proven that we're quite good at that. We have this model which... I think is kind of unique for the size of business that we have, very decentralized. So decision-making is very cascaded down into the local markets, the general managers of the business units around the world. Is it franchises? What percentage is franchise Well, it's, it's very highly franchised, but yeah. the decision-making is still made by a lot of the yum employees. So yep. we've got 19 business units around the world which have staffed and run by the yum employees who, who would work for myself, yep. and they would be calling the shots, making the main decisions. 
And, you know, we would put a lot of emphasis on, on allowing them autonomy to do that. And then the only way you do that is if you've got people that you genuinely can trust and feel comfortable with. And that's why big emphasis on people. But if you've got people like that, and then you can call on them to make changes and decisions quickly, it helps. Because if you try and do everything from the top, you can get very, very caught up in the quagmire and take forever to make change. Technology. Yep. Would you say you needed a bit of training on that at one stage? I did need a lot of training on that. I think um, I'm never going to be a technology expert. I think what I have become is a, a technology um, advocate in a big way, evangelist, if you want to call it. Mm-hmm. It's clearly, you know, from a digital technology point of view, it's changing the world. Yep. And it's growing at such a rate. We saw the growth during the pandemic, you know, in terms of just access through delivery or digital sort of formats, but it's not just in that space. It's growing every single place around, uh, well, around this, business. Is this stat right? Food delivery market is worth $150 billion. Yeah. US dollars? Oh, yeah. yeah. Is that right? Quite sure, yep. I mean, there's some some restaurant businesses that are just, all they do is delivery. So, I mean, we saw it go, you know, more than threefold in our business. Um, and that's across the world. And in many of our businesses, it's countries, it's been harder for them to deliver. So a big, a big you know, move. But it's not only in um, in delivery and things like that. It's in terms of the way that people talk to consumers. It's the way that they access through you know consumers through social channels. It's the uh, integration of Internet of Things into sensors and technology in the back of house and how you cook food and how you track quality and how you train people and everything else that you do in between. So certainly making a big impact. We always say um, follow your customers, right? Do what your customers want. Hmm. Do you? Or do you lead your customers? Because I don't think Apple ask their customers what they want because they never knew. Yep. So where does KFC and where does where does this whole industry stand? Because it's changed so rapidly, right? And it's it's evolved since the old big bucket chips and gravy, hasn't it? Yeah. That's a fantastic question. So the way that we look at it is we use this little acronym um, called RED. It just so happens that's our brand color. You know, KFC is red, <laughs> and it stands for being relevant, easy, and distinctive. And I think. The two components that you or the juxtaposition between those two, as you said, is one is about relevance and the other one is about distinction. So you have to be relevant. If you're not offering a product that consumers want, that sort of meets their sort of occasions that they're looking for, that makes sense for them in society, you're just not in the game. So you you have to be relevant. And that's where you have to understand what consumers want. You have to be in places where they want to access you. You have to give them in formats and you know quality that they expect. That's the one component of it. But the other side of it is to be distinctive. And I think that's something that we've done particularly well over the last five years or so. We used to use in terms of advertising this this notion that there were sort of two types of advertising you could get. You get mirror advertising and you get magnet advertising. Okay, what's the difference? What's, and, what are the mirror advertising is what you see on TV screens all over the place. Nice, happy families showing other people this is what your life is like. We all hold hands. We have this little thing. We eat a bucket of KFC chicken around the table. We smile at each other. And I'm being relevant to them. Yeah. It's just that it's boring. What you want is something that really screams, look at us. Look who great KFC is. Don't you want to be part of that? And I think when you can go along and stamp your image onto the TV screens or whatever form of advertising you're doing and saying, we're confident, we're clear about who we are, and we want you guys to admire us because we've got that sort of swagger about it. I think that creates that distinctiveness. I think that's what Apple does very well, which is we position this way. Like us or, or hate us, but you'll either follow us or, or you won't, but that's who we are. So being relevant, but also being incredibly distinctive about who you are, 
I think, is the right balance. And then, of course, you layer on this whole component about being easy. And being distinctive means you're taking risks sometimes, doesn't it? Because you're going on a limb. You might alienate people. Yep. And you might alienate a few people. But at the end of the day, you've got to be clear as to who you are. People want you to take a stand. They want you to position yourself in, in, the, in the society. KFC, you get it wrong? Um, occasionally. But I think generally speaking, you know, we're a brand that fits into society so well. So, you know, we're pretty thorough about the way that we go to, go to market. So I think generally we get it right more than, more than wrong. How much time of your day is actually spent on marketing? Because it is fascinating, isn't it? Marketing, influencing and what's the vehicle these days, Tony? How much is social versus, as you say, the old TV and everybody smiling on the screen? Yeah, I think I spend more of my time on talking to marketing people who are actually going to drive the marketing yeah. agenda. But if you look at the KFC agenda, how much is spent on marketing, yep. it's a big chunk. It's probably the biggest chunk. So yes, and I think we hire some of the best marketeers in the world. You know, what could be more exciting than working on a KFC brand? Yeah. It's got a, it's a big brand. It's yeah. got a lot of money to spend on advertising. It's uh, hugely connected with the audience. You know, it's an immediate stuff. You put an ad on TV, you can tell within 24 hours whether it's successful or not. It's got this, you know, tremendous cachet with it. So we hire really good marketing people around the world. We've got a huge marketing budget. We learn from 149 different countries around the world about what works, what doesn't work. So I think we've got a real big machine behind us, and that makes it quite exciting and fun. But yes, the, the world has changed. We've skewed you know, a significant chunk of our advertising budget to be through digital formats, mm -hmm. either social media or different sort of environments. Or else into you know community activity. So you know you'd be aware of the KFC you know sponsorship of the cricket and yep. and and that's a classic way of KFC connecting with its audience in a way outside of just direct TV. So now is it KFC or is it Kentucky Fried Chicken now? It's KFC, but we don't shy away from the word Kentucky Fried Chicken. I thought it was a bit of a um, renaissance <laughs> in Kentucky Fried Chicken. Look, I think. Um, we're unapologetic about who we are. So we're very happy to be called Kentucky Fried Chicken. We've seen people gravitate back to the brand over the years. When I first started out 27 years ago, people were telling me that fried chicken was on its way out. We were selling barbecue birds and seeing that as the future of the business. And obviously here in Australia, I think the amount of fried chicken we sell is probably five times more than it was when I first started. So we don't have any issue with Kentucky Fried Chicken. We think it's great. It defines who the brand is a lot better. Now, every Christmas Eve, KFC Japan sales are usually five to 10 times more than typical days. How did this tradition come about? You know, it's, a, it's an incredible phenomenon. No one's quite sure how it started, but apparently in 1974, there was an American tourist who was in Japan who wanted to get his uh, Christmas fix and he couldn't find it and um, started you know, banging on the doors of KFC to say, I need some chicken, you know, my turkey for Christmas because that's the only way that they could um, get some sort of chicken for Christmas dinner. And um, the Japanese team, they picked up on this and started therefore offering uh, Christmas bundles, particularly to tourists over Christmas to, to say, let's celebrate Christmas together. And it just snowballed from there, which is strange because I think the, the number of Christians in Japan is like one or 2%. And Christmas is not a hugely celebrated event, no. but it's just become synonymous with KFC. So it's one of those things that sort of grew out of nothing and has now become incredibly mainstream in Japanese culture. And what was the Michelin Impossible? Yeah, this was a, a, a promotion that we did in, in, in Australia, whereby we said, you know, look, KFC defines itself on one thing, which is the great taste of its food. Yeah. And that's pretty much what Michelin restaurants do as well, you know. So you go around the world, what 
encourages you to go to a Michelin star restaurant. It's finding something that's got wonderful tasting food that you're prepared to travel for. So we did this tongue in cheek uh, promotion here in Australia, which said, look, if you uh, really want to, you know, have the wonderful, fantastic taste, which is world renowned, KFC delivers on them, and therefore we think we should get a Michelin star for that. So we got one of our franchisees who actually has a, a restaurant in Alice Springs, which is pretty remote, and he has people who travel for a long way to come and get KFC from his restaurant, and he was the poster boy for the program. So we took him over to France and let him uh, try and muscle his way in on the Michelin uh, award uh, certifiers and tried to apply for a Michelin star there. But it was a fun way of just demonstrating how great KFC taste is. One of these challenges at the moment, Tony, and I'm sure you've been reading the papers nonstop, is attracting good staff and keeping good staff. When you employ over 12,000 people a year, how did you manage to keep the momentum during COVID and how would you keep it now? Well, just to put it in perspective, that 12,000 is in Australia. Yeah. So it's over 400,000 globally every year. A lot of that is attrition because people are moving through their, their job at KFC and maybe going somewhere else, but a lot of it's because of all the new restaurants mm -hmm. that we're opening. I think it goes back to what we said before, which is you want to create an environment where people want to be. We want people to come and work for us because they feel that they're working for an organization that they respect, that's going to treat them well, that's going to give them opportunity to be successful, and more than just a paycheck. So it's not going to be a price war? In terms of uh, what, we, what we pay people? Yeah, you know, against the other organization, for example. Look, I think there's always that entry place. You always you, you cannot underpay people. And I think yeah. we've been incredibly uh, strong globally to make sure that minimum wages are pushed up as high as we can. Now, what, what I'm saying by that, Tony, yeah. is that at the moment in the market, you're seeing price wars happening. So on those, talent. Yes, on yeah, talent yeah. within the same industry. Yep. Um, so if I was going to look at your industry, you know, people have got choice, sure. as you say, but you've got such a brand, et cetera, I want to come mm -hmm. and work with you. So do you don't think you see yourselves going into a price war to attract that, that level? Not really. I mean, you always have to pay fairly. I mean, if, if you're out of the ballpark in terms of, you know, compensation, you, you know, you you're, you're price. Struggle. But, yep. you know, I think what we offer people, as I said, I think we, we offer them an incredibly uh, – there are very few people who leave KFC because they don't like working there. There's almost no one. It's a, people love working at KFC. And then secondly, we give them a, an environment where they can really grow, flourish, and develop themselves as human beings. And then they have a great opportunity to advance their career. So I think what we sell to people is this opportunity because we're growing rapidly around the world and people can advance careers and they really can reach you know, new hearts that they hadn't been able to in the past or they couldn't in other organizations. And I think that's what we offer them. So where do you actually see the total market in the next five to 10 years? You're talking about Australia or globally? Globally. Yeah, look, I think it's going to continue to grow. I think more and more people get time poor, you know, fast food delivers great tasting food, convenient price, easy, quick, yep. convenient. I think we'll see more of that. I do think that the competition's hotting up. In other words, you you can't just be a fly-by-night offering sort of average product. You have to have a, a pretty good offering these days. So I think the competition's tight, and I think KFC plays well into that. I think we, we're constantly improving the quality of our food. So I think from where we were 20 years ago to where we are today, the quality of the food is better. I think the value is incredibly good. And then, as I said, we add on to that the ease and convenience that we're providing. I think we'll just see it continue to grow. And that's, you know, go back to this thing about delivery. Yes. That's continuing to grow, you know, as people understand what the convenience is. You know, we see it with internet banking. We see it with home delivery of groceries. And we see it home delivery of food. It's just gone through the roof. Whether it comes back a little bit more as COVID eases off, maybe. 
But I think people have got the bug about how easy it is to get food delivered, and I think we'll see more of that in the future. So as a leader on a global playing field, are you impressed by what you're seeing from our political leaders? Not particularly. I think, unfortunately, politics has become such a, what's the word, political situation to be in, where you know all they're doing is trying to get re-elected, which is understandable. But because of the way that social media has managed the political landscape, I think the decision-making has been quite weak. Yep. And I think that the long-term future for not only Australia, but for many countries around the world has been left a little bit behind as people make short-term decisions that's going to get them re-elected. I think we saw that obviously in the US and we've seen that in many countries around the world. So I don't feel particularly excited about the leadership, but I understand why it is what it is. And maybe it's more of a function of society as opposed to it is about the individuals in power. Do you think business is being strong enough in expressing their views? No. And I think that if you look at consumers, um, people in society, I think the trust that they have in, in government has has been eroded over a period of time. Yep. I think more people actually trust the companies that they work for now than they do other institutions. And I do think they're looking for leaders to step up and take a stand and have a point of view about what we should be doing in society. So I think we need to do more of that. So what worries you about the next few years? Well, if I think about Australia particularly, it's something that does uh, consistent around the world. It's things like income inequality. It's affordable housing. Uh, clarity on the immigration structure and, 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 and where that's heading. And I think people need to have those addressed, and I just don't see us getting those addressed coherently. We're talking about politicians. Uh, we're talking about terms and, I guess, consistency of message, and it is a concern. But for a business this day and age, Tony, you know, we remember when people used to start out the five- to ten-year strategy and the plan and execute that plan. Does that actually really exist at the top level now? Look, I don't think so. As a planner myself, I joined the organization as a as a planner. I've never been a great fan of three or five, ten-year plans, and I think they've certainly slipped away over the last several years anyway. I think the world you know, evolves too quickly. I think there is certainly an, uh, no harm in doing scenario planning. So if this thing happened, what would our response be to that? Yep. How would we handle X, Y, Z if that came along? Plain devil's advocate on a few other things. I think those are useful. But uh, that's why I said I think in in terms of a, a strategy, it's a it's it's a flawed one when you try and predict the future too far out. I think you have to be aware of what might be coming, be set yourself up so that you could take advantage of opportunities that arise, and then be prepared to change at, at at short notice. And I think if you can do that effectively, I think you're going to be in a better position. Now that's fine in our industry. It's not like we're working in aerospace or something like yeah, that, yeah, where sure. you might be doing a slightly longer term <laughs> forecasting than what we would do. Yeah, but still you're playing a global market, aren't you? We are, yeah. And I guess it's what, is positioning yourself to execute swiftly? Yes, and to, you know, ultimately, you know, we're, uh, you know, we provide food. We're not doing anything that's, you know, you know super scientific in the way that it, that it works. And um, we're therefore very conscious about where consumer trends are going, what people are thinking, how they look at health trends, how they yep. look at, you know, providence, how they look at um, ethical treatment of animals, how they look at plastics and, you know, all those things like that. And if you're not being relevant in that particular place, you're going to lose your, your place in society. So it's constantly evolving to make sure that you're part of what society expects and demands from you. So while you're on that, what is happening in, in terms of food responsibility, social responsibility? Can I share some, some insights there? Yeah. And I think the way that we've approached this is that, you know, we're doing a lot of stuff, but the fundamental essence to social responsibility is that 
you have to be a good organization. You can't be a bad organization and try and do some good things. It's like being a complete jerk walking down the street once a year and saying, look at me as you give a $20 note to some poor guy on the side of the street. It doesn't change you. You're still a jerk. (laughs) And I constantly see organizations that are doing this. So at the heart of what we do is we say we've got to be a good organization because we employ nearly a million people around the world. We can't have people working for us and say, you guys are talking out of two sides of your mouth. Most of the people who work for us are part of the society in which we operate. So they are the the recipients of poor decisions that get made. They're the ones who consequence of, you know, of environmental decisions or whatever it is that might come into play. So at the heart of it is make sure that you're a good organization. Make sure that you do good, irrespective of whether people notice or give you any credit for it whatsoever. That's fundamental. So we have a suite of ways of looking at it. It goes back to our heart of having people with good character. It's having an organization with good character, making sure that we are true to what we do. The people who will hold us accountable more than anyone else are our employees. So if we go out and say we're going to do X, Y, Z, our employees will, will notice if we don't. So that's at the heart of what we do. And then it's about really trying to make a change in every single country in which you're operating. And as I said before, each country can be a little bit different because some people, you know, plastics in the environment are, are an incredibly high priority. For some other people, it's uh, you know, ethical treatment of animals and you know, other people, it might be pollution of a different sort. So we do have to modify our approach around the world. And we do that by devolving decision-making to the people on the ground, but by having an envelope around what we want to do and provide seed funding for that in different parts of the world. So if you've got oversight of a million people, well, what would you share about where Australia sits in the world economy in terms of business, thinking, decision-making, and innovation? Where do we really stand? You know, Australia actually punches so much above its weight. And I mean, if you look at our industry, and I know that we're not necessarily you know, the key drivers of, of the global economy, but a lot of senior executives from Australia have done very well in our industry, both in McDonald's, KFC, and various other places around the world. Yeah. And I think the things that Australia has, which other organizations or other countries don't have, I think it's this ability to really get a grip around the entire infrastructure that's in, in the country. So if I go to my counterparts in the US, a lot of them have very narrow but very deep roles. In Australia, you tend to get an overview of the entire picture. So most people in Australia who are working in business have a good understanding about economics, have a good understanding about supply chain, they understand technology, they understand how they fit into the world. So I think we're a a well-educated society. I think we're a, a society that has a very broad spectrum of business. And I think we contribute, therefore, thoughtfully around the world, given that background that we've got. We're still obviously a small component of the global economy, so I don't think we're influenced from that point of view, but Australians do well many parts of the world. Tony, you haven't mentioned anything about your competitors. Yeah, you say competitors, you haven't mentioned any names. There's obviously one big one out there. <laughs> What's the fundamental differences? Yeah, I mean, the way we look at our competitors is um, we don't really worry about them that much. I mean, obviously, we're very aware of them and, and understand that there is a competition for share of stomach and all the rest of it, but KFC is pretty unique. I think when you when you talk about KFC and ask people, almost every country you go to, you say, why do you go to KFC? What, what excites you about KFC? And it's all about food. It's mouthwatering, delicious, uh, you know, wonderful 11 herbs and spices, indulgent, you know, over the top, you know, great tasting food. And that that's who we are. A lot of our competitors are a lot more about convenience, value for money, consistency, 
clean toilets, smiling, smiling staff. And I think that's how the distinction occurs. And there's a place for everyone. I think KFC is growing rapidly, as are many of our competitors around the world. But I think at the moment, you know, we're very comfortable about how we're positioned and what we stand for. And what are the learnings from those growth parts of the world? How quickly those countries are adapting? The biggest learning that I've seen since my tenure yep. is that you have to use local people to drive your business. When I first started, we used to export Americans to far-flung parts of the world who would go and try and grow the business in those countries. And that was a very much a hit-and-miss situation. Nowadays, is what we do is we partner with really growth-oriented people who understand the markets, understand the real estate, understand the consumers, understand supply chain, and get that right. It's a little bit like I started off with, is that our business shouldn't be that complicated, but it's got a hundred little things that you have to get right. And you get one of those wrong, it can fall apart pretty quickly. So someone on the ground who really has this intimate, detailed knowledge about how to execute in a local market becomes fundamental. That's one part of it. The other part of it is to get the value equation right. We're in business because we offer great tasting food at a good price. And if we can't give it at the right price, you lose market share very, very quickly. So it's incredibly important that we get the value equation spot on. Tony, you're leading 149 nations. Almost incredible to comprehend. How do you keep the momentum? How do you engage? How do you influence as a CEO? And what is the actual role in your mind then of a CEO? That's a complex question. And I'll answer with one simple component of it is that I think that my job as CEO has been to support people to be better at what they do. So I see myself as a hugely glorified cheerleader, finding what are those sparks that are going to make people get more excited when they get out of bed every day to achieve wonderful things? And that requires a whole range of things, which is knowing people and knowing what excites them and motivates them. It's about recognizing those people for the things that they've done, which you know are going to drive the business further into the future, and therefore encourage them to do more of it without directing, without controlling, but allowing them to flourish and blossom in their own right. And I think when you can inspire people by getting people to want to do things without you directing and controlling them, when they're inspired to do the right thing because it makes them feel great, and you can cascade that down through layer after layer after layer after layer till you've got to the cook in the back of the house in you know, Ecuador and South America who's cooking the chicken the right way because he wants to cook it the right way, not because someone's standing over and watching him, then you've got a wonderfully high-performing organization. And I don't think we've got that perfect, but I think we're a long way down the path towards achieving that. If you were to look back at your career, is there anything in particular in hindsight now you would have changed? Not really. I think you know what I've learned over the time is that you, when you're faced with challenges and difficulties, you often dread those and you, you hate them and you feel fearful of them. But they're the ones that really shape you and make you grow. And they're the ones that actually define who you are later on in life. So I think that as I look back on some of the tough situations that I had to go through, I think I'd have probably embraced them a little bit more enthusiastically and sort of learn to learn learn to learn from them better than just try and avoid them. And I think that's probably true for everyone in life. Embrace the challenges rather than run away from them. So when the lights get switched off for Tony's tenure, hmm. what's the legacy? I think it's what I went in to try and do, which is I think that we've created an environment where people can be better than when they you know, were going to join the organization. Um, I think we've got a 
an incredibly strong culture with people across 149 countries. And I think we've layered on top of that, which is you know high performance. The business has tripled in size since I've been there over 27 years, and it's continuing to grow at an even faster rate. So in this uh, good billing discussion today, are you going to share with us what the famous 11 herbs and spices are? <laughs> well, you know, interestingly, I don't even know what they are. So I think we've got three people in the world that know. And that's it's all right. What, what they do is they, we, you know, we make the herbs and spices up from different suppliers. And one supplier will make one half of the ingredients. The other supplier will make the other half. And then we take them to a different place and blend them together. So even the suppliers don't have the full spec on what the herbs and spices are. So the Colonel Sanders really draft the original yes. herbs and spices? He did, and they're the same herbs and spices you probably have in your pantry at home. It's just the way they're blended. The way they're blended, yep. So, Tony, if you're going to be looking back at that young man who was contemplating life, doing his MBA, what advice would you give him now? Well, I think it's a little bit like what I said before, which is look on the world with optimism, embrace the challenges, don't run away from them, do more of what you enjoy, and less of, you know, worry about the things that you're fearful of. On that, it's been a fantastic discussion. Great. Thank, Thank you, Greg. Thank you for joining us today. No problem. Appreciate it. You've been listening to No Limitations. Mm-hmm.